2: We talk student experience, tackling sexual harassment and hate crime, outward mobility, and what the next leader of the Conservatives thinks of H. E. It's all coming
3: up. Got to work with experts outside the university. You've got to have people on site who are trained, who are supported, and you've got to make sure that staff in general, not just you know, not not just a handful of, of kind of champions, are, are really up to speed with the issue. So I mean, when I, uh, when, I when I spoke to um, uh, well, women particularly, for an international Women's Day, working in this area.
2: To the Wonky Show, your direct way into higher education policy, people, and politics. I'm Rachel Firth, and here to trek over the glens of higher education policy. As usual, we have three fabulous guests. In London, we have Gavin Conlon, partner at London Economics. Gavin, give us your highlight of the week, please. Uh,
1: so it's nothing higher education related. It's India turning over Australia in the cricket World Cup.
2: And south of the river, we've got Greg Walker, chief executive. of New
4: Oh, I think it's probably the again nothing at he particularly the uh, the spectacle of the Tory leadership contest and what ten candidates doing launches within a space of forty eight hours with Dutch stroop waffles, uh, gold wristbands and you know the theme tunes pumping out from Katy Perry and Justin Timberlake. It's been quite an interesting week, hasn't it? And journalists no doubt been running around with like headless chickens during this period.
2: Indeed, and my obsession with Matt Hancock grows stronger by the minute. Mm. Um, And in Wonky HQ, that exists only in the cloud, we have Wonky's editor, Debbie McBitty. Debbie, give us your highlight of the week, please.
3: My highlight is definitely a braggy one, which is that yesterday on a really lovely uh, visit to Liverpool John Moores uh, teaching and learning conference, I discovered that something I wrote 10 years ago about, uh, you know, about how to approach your PhD is still being read and used by PhD students today, which is uh, humbling and also slightly disturbing.
2: 10 years ago, you must have written that when you were doing your A-levels, Debbie. Good grief. Um... Uh, GC- GCSEs, Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> This week, we start with the Student Academic Experience Survey, which was, produced, which was produced by the Higher Education Policy Institute, or HEPI, and Advanced HE. Released this week, the annual survey is now in its 13th year, and it's it can measure like-for-like like changes over that period. So, Gavin, what did this tell us this year?
1: Okay, so just before I hit the main findings, wondering about this survey is, uh, this is a really useful survey, because as you say, it's it hasn't changed for 13 years, or a lot of questions haven't changed. So it's actually a really good sort of... Uh, Taking a pulse of the higher education sector. Also, the cover of this report is uh, looks like a Bronze Beat album, so anybody in the 1980s will sort of appreciate that. Anyway, <laughs> so 41% of students perceive good or very good value from their course. This is the second consecutive year with a three percentage point improvement. Uh, 29% of students perceive poor or very poor value from their, their course, which is a drop of three percentage points since last year and five percentage points since 2017. So, uh value for money perceptions differ by the type of student. Students from Scotland have relatively high positive perceptions, while non-EU international students have relatively low positive perceptions. Recent funding changes in Wales have not yet had any material impact on first-year students there uh, in terms of their value for money. Uh, teaching quality is the main factor for students who perceive positive value for money, and tuition fees are the main factor for students who receive poor value for money, and that's about 62% in each case. Two-thirds of students would choose the same course at the same university if they were applying again, which is quite encouraging. Only 4% would opt to do an apprenticeship and even fewer would not enter higher education to get a job. That's about 3% uh, or not enter higher education and do something else, which is only 2%. Uh, In terms of contact hours, there's been small changes to average contact hours and workload in recent years. So since 2015, there's been a decline in independent study. So about 15.2 hours declining to 13.8 hours a week and an increase in timetable contact hours. So from 13.4 hours to about 13.9 hours. One other point um, relates to just general well-being and mental health. So students are significantly more anxious than other young people. So about 16% of students surveyed uh, in the report felt uh, low anxiety against 37% for all those aged 20 to 24. Uh, One point here is it's a miracle that uh, the folks who wrote the report could actually get any information from the ONS website uh, about anything. So that's a major miracle. So the results also confirm that students want more support from taxpayers uh, for the cost of teaching undergraduates. So 43% say the government should pay more or should pay over half the cost and 22% say they should pay all the costs. But uh, that's not really that surprising. It is out of line with the recent Augur report on the post-18 education in England, which says taxpayers should continue to pay half. So they're the main uh, points. I just rattle them off.
4: Well it's good to see a survey where things are going in the right direction. I mean the indicators that Gavin's just summarised in terms of uh, value for money and in terms of quality of teaching and assessment I mean the show improvements now for a couple of years running and you know we don't want to read too much into a two year trend but I think this is a really encouraging sign and I think addresses some of the political you know, debate and the media debate that's uh, circulating around higher education. So a rare bit of good news and uh, that's a real positive so I think I smiling this morning or yesterday when reading the Embargoed Report and uh, and this is important, I think, because um, some of the questions in the, this particular survey may well find their way into the next iteration of the, N- uh, the National Student Survey. Uh, people suspect and people expect um, the o- uh, OFS having taken control of the survey, uh, albeit uh, in line with uh, the other three nations of the UK, perhaps, to come to a compromise on what the questions will be. But people expect that there will be um, questions in future on value for money and more um, detailed questions about teaching intensity and so on. So, this is a really crucial report uh, and uh, it's good to see things moving in the right direction.
3: I think, um, I mean, reading the survey, and I should sort of caveat my comments by saying, you know, this is a really substantial piece of work and 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 asks some very important questions, but I couldn't help thinking that um, there was a window in policy world where the uh, interests and concerns of of HEPI as a kind of as, as a sort of watcher of policy and Advance as a or you know HEA as well as, as, a, as a sort of champion of, of excellent learning and teaching were really really closely aligned. You know, the era of the design of the TEF before that, David Willetts championing learning and teaching and talking about things like um, contact hours, and, and now I sort of almost see I'm beginning to see a sort of slight divergence. So the focus on things like student wellbeing and value for money that 's still very current in the policy landscape, but actually you, 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 the sort of things about sort of assessment and feedback and and, and the more kind of detail of, of of the learning and teaching experience and environment feel a bit off topic in some ways and although those things are important in the round it, it, they don 't feel like necessarily part of the national policy conversation so I think there 's something about um, the, these, these sort of things sort of are, be, are beginning to sit sort of rather uneasily alongside each other for me, and the other thing that I thought. Was the way the way that the individual institutions are beginning to develop their thinking around what it is that they're offering, how they're differentiating themselves? Actually, the kind of the, the, the national, the sector-wide picture, or even that kind of um, sort of mission group or, or, or institution type comparison, feels a bit rough. And, and I think so, I mean, and, and every survey is always a kind of snapshot, in it, and it always starts further conversations. And, and I think that there will be some really useful conversations going on inside institutions as a result of this survey, but. I'm not sure, for example, what comparing every post-92 institution in the sector tells me because increasingly they are so different and they're trying to do different things.
1: I mean, I've, I've actually spent a bit of time looking at the, the previous year's surveys as well, but you know, really there's not many changes year on year. And I think we you can't read too much into sort of a, a quick flip around in terms of whether more, more or less people um, think there's a change in value for money or perceptions of value for money. I think there are many positives in this um, report, but uh, for instance issues about like about uh two-thirds of respondents say that they wouldn't change their decision in terms of the university or the course that they were undertaking it's also reassuring that you see about a third of students say that their expectations uh, were not fulfilled but that was because it was a lack of effort on their part okay so people are sort of uh, quite realistic about why expectations are met or otherwise one of the things is that um there's lots of chat about value for money and that's a big sort of thing and you know Um, but I think the bigger issue relates to things like satisfaction and expectations. And satisfaction and expectations are sort of leading indicators of value for money and they're driven by teaching. So a lot of the people who sort of say their expectations were met, it was because of teaching, good teaching. And a lot of people who said that their expectations were not met, it was because of teaching. So I think people are, you know, reading too much into the the issues about uh, fees and actually sort of veering away from issues about teaching quality. One other thing that um, nobody... Uh, has mentioned is about um, all this stuff, all all this material and lead tables. All this stuff about teaching is essentially unchanged over time. But when you see league tables and people are, some institutions are are jumping around 20 or 30 places, this really sort of makes you question about the reliability of league tables and why we actually look at league tables because the fundamentals haven't changed. So why would individual organisations' rankings have changed to such an extent? It's really sort of, there's a dichotomy between the two.
4: And the small decline in the, the level of independent learning reported in the survey. Again, Gavin's right, we shouldn't read too much into one or two years' results as a trend. But I mean, that could be, you know, that is a real problem. I don't know whether it's pressure on people uh, working while they're studying, this is, a, this is an issue across institutions. As people will be aware, but that that's quite closely correlated with academic success. The level of independent study, as Tim Blackman, uh, uh, the Vice Chancellor of Middlesex University, has uh, reported in a, c- a couple of years ago. Yeah, well, so it's, really it's is a leading It does, yeah, absolutely. So that is a concern.
1: One other thing, i just, and this is a sort of name call for Nick Hillman. At, at Happy. Um, I mean, essentially, there's, there's other issues. I mean, these are a lot of correlations. I know we do this correlation thing later on, but the, a lot of the, the analysis here is just basically correlation. And there are real issues about uh, the sample composition. So there's a reduction in the proportion of respondents who are arts and humanities, creative arts, and, and history and philosophy and things. Uh, there's an increase in the proportion of the sample that are STEM graduates. So seeing changes in value for money I, might be driven from a, a compositional bias. I mean, this I, is wonky, I this so I'm giving you a bit of...
2: Well, I think there's wonky. also um, a disproportionate amount of uh, students that are from an independent school background as well. If
1: I, yeah, I mean, when when you look at the when you look at the sample representativeness, I think some work has to be done on that. And I think um, you really got to get into the cross tabs and sort of beat the hell out of the data with some econometrics to actually sort of see what's driving what. We you can love see-
3: getting in the cross. And, I mean, the the, the other thing, of course, is you to can, get. You can, yeah, you- <laughs> It's to, it's, to, it's to get into the um, the alternative providers as well, and, and, and you know, so they, there was a there's a small number that they were able to ac- um, accumulate over three years. But I mean, if we're not going to, you know, if, if we're going to be able to kind of capture capture the experience of the whole sector, that's going to have to improve.
1: There's one other thing. I mean, there's one thing. I mean, there was a talk earlier about uh, the OFS getting involved or maybe taking over the survey. I mean, I think um, I don't think that's a great idea because I, no, I, I, mean, I <laughs> I've, seen, I've seen so many uh, surveys that have been just been butchered because, you know, the the policy choice of the time. You know, somebody is going to ask about a particular, you know, whatever it is, and then the, the continuity of the data gets destroyed. So, I mean, I'd be sort of strongly against that. If they want to run their own survey, fine, but this should just stay clean.
2: Okay, Dokie, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. <laughs>
5: Hi, my name is Paul Webb and I'm a Widening Participation Officer at King's College London. Um, I've written a piece about the role of parental engagement in Widening Participation with reference to a programme we run at King's called Parent Power. And Parent Power is about helping parents in the local community to become experts in access to higher education and also supporting them to campaign for change. Um, I think the most important message in the article is about actually asking parents on a one-to-one basis what they are concerned about or what they need and actually listening rather than assuming we know what's best for them as, as higher education people. So it's about building meaningful relationships and trust and not just giving them a campus to a, a, talking about grade requirements and expecting any kind of real impact. So I think it's time to go beyond just information, advice and guidance and to really start designing quality, tailored parental engagement programmes for the communities that we serve. Hi, I'm Johnny Rich. I'm the Chief Executive of the Engineer and Professor's Council and Chief Executive of Outreach Organisation, PUSH. The Augur Review mentions the word value a lot, but it never defines it. From recent pronouncements, it's clear what the Education Secretary, Damian Hines, thinks value means. He thinks it means a degree that leads to a high salary. He recently said that any course whose student didn't start repaying their loans within five years uh, was a poor value course. My piece that I've written for Wonky this week looks at all the ways that and Hines and Jorga's missing definition is wrong. Focusing on salaries is bad for enterprise, it's bad for the arts, it's bad for people who want to give more to society than they take, and it's bad for regional and social development. The problem is that value is a hard thing to define. And so instead of value, we should look at our values. We should ask what matters to us and what education is for. We need to be clear about that in order to design a funding system that can deliver it.
2: Next up, the Office for Students, or OFS, has published an independent evaluation on tackling sexual harassment and hate crime in English universities. The the evaluation carried out by Advanced he looks at the impact of 108 projects, awarded a total of £4.4 million to tackle hate crime and sexual violence and harassment at 84 universities and colleges. Debbie, would you be so kind as to set the scene on this one for us, please? Thanks, Rachel. So this is in uh, 2016,
3: Universities UK published the Changing the Culture report, which was a sort of concerted effort to look at um, processes and and best practice around tackling sexual harassment, sexual violence and hate crime um, in the higher education uh, landscape. And following that, Hefki at the time put fair amount of money into funding projects under the old Catalyst Fund. And uh, Advance HE has now carried out an evaluation of those projects. There were two rounds. One was focused on the sort of sexual violence harassment. The other was focused on on the hate crime. And it's evaluating what the impact of that funding has been. And to some extent, and particularly if you read the OFS summary of the report, it's quite a good news story because unsurprisingly, the existence of funding really does kind of focus minds and activity. So you've got lots of partnership working with students in, in in addressing these issues you've got good good partnerships with the community emerging you've got uh, the appointment of specialist staff um and you've got lots of, of projects that are, are raising awareness and, and vitally kind of increasing reporting um, uh, but as uh, jim dickinson's written very um very well on the site uh, if you go into the advanced he report which is which is much more uh, reflective and 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 much more dense and um, you you find the real kind of meat of the evaluation and there's Clearly, still some challenges around sustainability, which is what you always get with project funding, because when the money runs out, it's not—you know—it's not these projects don't always continue. Um, challenges around, in some cases, university leaders still feeling that there might be reputational damage by admitting that these issues are a problem for them, which um, is is really distressing. But I think there's this, this kind of safety in numbers effect with everyone coming in at once to talk to talk about it, which is which is sort of given given some cover for for, for nervous le- risk averse leaders. Um, uh, and also, I think in some cases, challenges around partnership working with students, partly because there's, there's there's a sort of easy there's an easy bunch of students to get to they're the ones in student societies they're the ones that are on campus full time they're the ones that are already quite invested in in these issues and are already kind of talking about them and wanting to do something and then of course, there's a, a sort of more dispersed group of students, whether they are kind of structurally dispersed such as commuter groups or whether they're from a particular demographic that perhaps is culturally less um keen or or uh, you know uh able to able to talk about these issues that, that may not be being reached. So they, there's some really really rich recommendations in the long report, and I absolutely commend it to anyone who's working in this
1: area. Yeah, so uh, yeah, I mean, I come purposes. from I come from this from a completely different perspective, I mean, I haven't worked in a university in, in 15 years. But uh, I mean, it's clearly the case that there is you know a fair prevalence of uh, harassment in the workplace. Um And I think it's sort of coming to light. I think people have known about it for many many years, but it's sort of coming out into the open. I think that's got to be a good thing. I think you've got to shine a light on uh institutional practices or you know explicit or implicit facilitation of harassment so I think that I think everybody coming out at once and showing uh, an evaluation of one hundred and eight um or so programs I think is a good thing. I think the thing that concerned me the most was the you know the potential institutional response or unwillingness to engage because of perceptions of negative publicity i find that sort of shocking um you know i don't i don't think there's any excuse for that so um i think institutions if you have a choice between you know essentially that's tacit facilitation of harassment and you know i think the publicity associated with that and actual harassment is worse than any alternative
3: what also struck me i think was uh, the the absolute necessity of of using specialist staff in this area, so you really you really can't just sort of cobble together something. You've, you know, you've got to work with experts outside the university. You've got to have people on site who are trained, who are supported, and you've got to make sure that staff in general, not just you know, not not just a handful of, of kind of champions, are are really up to speed with the issue. So I mean, one when, uh, when I when I spoke to um, uh, well women particularly for International Women's Day working in this area and developing and delivering projects, one of the things that they said was that you know they, they would they would roll out training to, for example, academics and personal tutors and that sort of thing, but they initially um, in one case hadn't hadn't really thought about uh, administrators, departmental administrators, but actually the departmental administrators were often a first point of contact for students and they were interacting with students. And
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really important point. It costs money. There's one thing it costs money, number one, but number two, I mean, you know, harassment sort of can happen at every single level of the organisation. So you need, I mean, you know, you need someone like AC12 and Inspector Hastings. You need like a, a sort of a separate organisation within the university to investigate and to sort of deal with harassment claims. Because at the moment, I I mean, you know, we see with the the recent, uh, you know, incidents at uh, University of Warwick, where um, you know, as the head of press or communications, is involved in the sort of. The panel to adjudicate whether the the students are expelled from the university, and you know, I mean, if the, if, I mean, that's a conflict of interest. You would assume.
4: I, I mean, it's really important that the prevalence of harassment and hate crime in society at large isn't quite rightly getting the publicity that uh, you know to, to to try and eliminate it. And the the, the assault last week on the tube uh, of uh, Melania Gamonat and her girlfriend, uh, I think, has put this rightly in the spotlight. And I think there's now a lot more rightly, visibility on some of the hate crime issues that the country faces. I myself have faced a couple of hate crime incidents in in the last few years, um, and it's something that universities have to take incredibly seriously. And I'm really pleased that the OFS is making this a part of their um, work programme, and universities absolutely have to mainstream this, and it's good to see the positive outputs from the
1: case studies that they've got. I mean, one thing I would sort of say, though, I think there's a, a real challenge in terms of the institutional structure of universities. And the fact is that they're very big um, and they're sort of spread out. There's different departments of schools and, and layers within layers uh, within the university. And it's actually hard to, you know, there's a real issue about identifying or having oversight of the the, the problem unless significant resources are put in. So, I mean, I work in a, a small organisation and there's, you know, you've got a very good idea um, and you have very very tight monitoring of you know behaviors essentially so you know what's going on but when at a university i mean there's such huge sprawling uh, organizations potentially you know unless there's uh an appropriate commitment of resources you, you know and a, like a, a serious commitment of resources plus senior um commitment um then you know this is going to just carry on and people are going to you know suffer very badly
2: Next up, we talk about Outward Student Mobility, but first, I want to tell you that on the 2nd of July, we'll be hosting Counting the Cost, an event to assess the impact of the Augur Review. Featuring an interview with Philip Augur, the day will give you a chance to hear from Team Wonky's experts, as well as leading voices from further and higher education. We will be demystifying and digesting all the numbers, such as the reduction in fee cap, the repayment threshold, and we'll look at the impact on the whole post-compulsory education system, whether that's lifelong learning, further and higher education, and how they all relate. And all of this in the context of a Conservative Party leadership race, an impending spending review and a demographic upswing on the horizon. To book your place and to see the full agenda, go to wonky.com forward slash events. That's wonky.com forward slash events. And we look forward to seeing you there.
5: University campuses can be surprising and unpredictable places. Students, staff and visitors often do the strangest things. Fortunately, our ever reliable security team are on hand to deal with every eventuality. For over a decade now, we've been compiling a comprehensive record of the bizarre, unfortunate, inexplicable, and just plain weird reports from campus security. Here's your chance to hear some of the most remarkable reports from the ever expanding case notes of true crime on
0: campus. 0600 Report of a heron eating a live goldfish from the Millennium Gardens. 10am. Report that an envelope with £600 in it had been found in a book in the Hallwood Library. Security attended and collected the money from the library staff who found it. The student came to security later in the day to ask if the money had been handed in. Security were able to return the money to the very happy student. The student was given advice on looking after their money. The student also explained that this money was from his parents. 1900. The semi-final of the World Cup was screened, with numbers attending in their low hundreds. No issues have been reported. Security measures are in place for the England game, which is being played this evening. Numbers and excitement are expected to be higher than last night. A call was also received by security from a Mr G Southgate, querying whether the registrar of the University of Nottingham was fully on board with the fact that it was coming home. Security assured him that the formal position of the university was that it was indeed coming home. Registrar to be alerted for follow-up. Just to note that the mystery of what exactly was expected to be coming home has yet to be satisfactorily resolved. And in any case, it ended up somewhere else after all.
2: Uh, next up, international student mobility. So Universities UK International or U- UKI have released their Gone International Rising Aspirations report this week. This is part of their Go International standout campaign, which is designed to help the sector deliver on its national target for outward student mobility. So, Greg, what were the key things which stood out for you in the report?
4: Yeah, it's a really important survey, um, and it's based on daily data from sixteen, seventeen, the graduating cohort, basically, and it showed another modest rise in the proportion of the student population that are mobile. In other words, spent a week or more um, uh, educated abroad. Um, It's now up to just short of eight percent, which is progress, but slow progress, I think it's fair to say. Uh, And we've got to remember we are way behind, way behind some of our European partners in terms of the proportion of students that that are mobile. So you know, we though there's a Modest rise. Um, you know, this is really uh, not 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 quite the global Britain aspiration that we need to be hitting. We should be, as the campaign uh, states, hitting something like thirteen percent or possibly more than that uh, if we're really going to be serious international, um, you know, engaged uh, students. So, uh, some some good news and some bad news in the um, in the report. On the whole, uh, good news in the sense that. The class gap and the race gap, um, in terms of the proportion of uh, people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds who are mobile compared to those from higher socioeconomic backgrounds, is narrowing slightly, but there is still a gap of three or four percent between. Uh, less advantaged more advantaged uh, people uh which is a depressing statistic uh and the although the bme gap for mobility is uh, is shrinking a little bit there is still um you know a three percent gap uh, uh, for, for the, the students who are black compared to students who are white and those who can or do access mobility um so i mean there people talk often about the, the benefits that mobility has to students experiencing it. And it's clear, again, from the data and the report that those are real. Um, so 92% of mobile graduates got a first or upper second class degree, um, whereas only 80% of non-mobile graduates uh, do. Now, whether there's a causation there, I don't know. But I think, you know, that there's a good indication that uh, opportunities abroad really do stimulate um, people's academic achievement. And, and so it's really important to fix our... You know, to fix our gaze on the, uh, hitting the target in uh, in the campaign of, of raising this from 8% effectively to, to 13%, you know, only two years. So, now uh, how we can do this uh, in the context of Brexit, goodness knows. Uh, if we're going to be crashing out in November, then of course, we will probably leave um, Erasmus Plus um, the day after. So, uh, that would be a real concern. And, you know, we, we do want, uh, you know, strong commitment from the government, uh, the UK government to participate in. Uh, Erasmus+, Plus, which they can do even as a non-member of the EU um, uh, in, in, in the next round. So we do need to keep our eye on the international mobility ball. And uh, this report is a very helpful um, sort of analysis and uh, I think call to arms for the sector just to continue the work um, in this area and try to, to, to narrow the gaps, the participation gaps uh, between the class gaps and the race gaps that are described.
3: Uh, I think there's a really interesting... Um, intersection between the uh, gap in the advantage and disadvantage students and then also the subject gaps. So the sorts of subjects that people tend to go abroad less are things like social work, computer science, sports science, nursing. These are uh, vocational professional sorts of courses. They also tend to have... um, in, in some cases, you know, quite a lot of placement time and that sort of thing. And you, you might sort of argue that students studying these sorts of things um, have really enough on their plate without having to worry about going abroad. But they also, I think, in some cases tend to be, so nursing particularly, for example, is, um, you know, you're going to get a hyperponderance of mature students, student, perhaps students with less um, HE, HE background in their family and stuff like that. And I think this is, I think one of the ways to tackle the disadvantage gap may be to actually look at the subject gap, because the, these subjects are not sort of necessarily constituted as being subjects in which a period abroad, Contributes to the overall uh, subject, and also you know that you, you know you've got professional statutory and regulatory bodies to contend with. So I think rather than um, if I w- if I was a, if I was a university vice chancellor thinking about how to boost my mobility, I might I might start by thinking about the way that the subjects are constructed and talking to the regulators and the, and the PSRBs about. About how st- nursing students, for example, can benefit from from you know spending time abroad and and, and looking at the way these things are done in other countries. And and um, at Bedfordshire there was a, a pilot program on a, of a sort of short term outward mobility for nurses, and, and it obviously went really well because it's you know because it's a brilliant experience. Uh, so I think I think yeah I think I think that could be a really interesting way into this challenge.
1: Yeah, I mean there's a couple of really interesting things about this uh, report. I mean the the impact of uh, Brexit, any form of Brexit, not even hard Brexit, is uh, going to be interesting. I mean given the fifty percent of the outward mobility of the students went to the European Union and it's only sort of 18% to the states and 7% to, to Australia etc so I think uh, there are huge challenges ahead but I thought the interesting thing, thing about this report was the fact that it essentially mirrors the characteristics of the country so if you look at you know, where students are most likely to be outward mobile Northern Ireland, a heavy remain area 12.1% of students were outwardly mobile, Scotland heavy remain it's 10.4%, Wales 6.5% or something and England is 7.5% Both leave you know but it's also so i mean geographically it reflects the the sort of thinking of the country with respect to just general mobility issues but then i think there are real issues here about um you know social class and and entrenching social uh socioeconomic factors i mean i think 15 percent of uh young people who uh, were outly mobile, were privately, uh, educated compared to 7% for state schools in terms of parental education, whether they had a degree. I think 10% had of parents, uh, 10% of respondents had their parents had degrees compared to 5%, uh, whose parents didn't have degrees. So, I mean, there really is this, um, you know, I'm not saying it's entrenching, uh, socioeconomic gaps, but it seems, it seems to be.
4: Yeah. I mean, it just, I uh, th-
1: I think the the task for government now really is to take
4: international mobility more seriously in the negotiations and the plans for post-Brexit plans that they they are assembling uh, at the moment. And I hope the Treasury, when it... um you know, looking at all the options for supporting post-Brexit contingencies is looking at continuing paying for continued participation uh, uh, in Erasmus+. Uh, people talk about managed no deal. I'm not going to get into the uh, not going to get into the, uh, the pros and cons of that uh, in the Tory leadership debate. But if if there is any scope for a managed uh, no Brexit, I think that Erasmus and the international mobility programmes ought to be pretty close to the top of that list uh, to maintain our participation in those programmes if we don't exit. With a uh, with a deal, so um, yeah, yeah, that's I think just a just a reminder to the government to how
1: important this agenda is. One last thing I've I've got is on this is that uh, you know a very high proportion of uh, modern foreign language students were outwardly mobile, and you sort of expect to see that. I mean, I think I saw the figure of ninety three percent of French students students studying French were outwardly mobile, and that's great. Um, But given the restrictions or the cuts in funding in sixth form education and secondary schools, so many secondary schools in the UK are or in England are facing massive uh, restrictions to their timetables. Um, and you see the evisceration of modern foreign languages. So, you know, what's actually happening is that the pool of secondary school pupils that are going to come through to uh, university with those or undertaking those qualifications or those course areas, of course, subject areas that sort of, would naturally lead to outward mobility they're going to get eviscerated uh so i think even though this report is great i think this is sort of like you know peak outward mobility and it's only going to go downhill from here which is a real shame
2: now it's time for yes but does it correlate you may have seen if you are one of wonky's daily subscribers that our regular uh, host of this David Curnahan, got married this week so here to set this week's correlation question is wonky's associate editor david cunahan's son ben Hi, I'm Ben. My dad's away this week, so he's asked me to set some correlation questions for the podcast. First up, I was wondering whether the rise in teaching only contracts and the rise in fixed-term academic staff has a statistical link. I'm worried that we're starting to see stratification in academia, and when I become an academic, I want to be able to do teaching and research because that's more fun. Teaching only contracts and fixed-term contracts. Yes, but
1: does it correlate? I'll go first. No. I have no idea why i couldn't make any sense out of this ben uh but i think no
3: i think the case for it correlating relates to the um i guess uh, a sense that there's a sort of casualization and that and that being put in a teaching only contract is more likely to be a short-term contract but you get fixed-term contracts in research more so i think no it doesn't correlate
4: well, first of all, congratulations to David on, uh, on the wedding. Uh, people have seen uh, the, some of the Twitter photographs. They look fantastic. Uh, so good luck, to, good luck to him in his uh, new stage of his life. But on uh, answering the correlation, I, th- I don't think there'll be a correlation. I think teaching-only contracts probably are more related to universities taking a stricter line on the ref and submittable staff for, for, for the next ref. I think that will be the, the principal correlation there. So I, my answer would be no.
2: The answer is a yes. R squared is 0. 0.52, a moderate correlation, which suggests that there is some link. The Russell Group uses more fixed term contracts than average, but they also have more academic staff. Generally, it looks like the size of a university is the key to relationship. Data from 2017 to 18 heats a staff record, and where the data doesn't exist. I'm not using that catchphrase, okay? and finally the Conservative Party is searching for a new leader Sam Jima the former Universities minister has pulled out so what do the other candidates think of higher education we've been looking out for NHE policy which has entered into the race so Debbie what do we know at this stage
3: well, um, I should clarify for our listeners so that at the time of recording, we're expecting, which is Thursday morning, um, we're expecting uh, a number of the candidates to leave the race by about lunchtime today um, because of the new rules that say you have to get a certain number of, of votes to be, to be allowed to enter the next round rather than kind of eliminating one at a time. So everything could have changed by the time people are listening to this. But I think it's also f- it's fair to say... Um, the candidates are very unlikely to want to be drawn on some of the thornier issues in higher education. So I don't think we're going to see anybody coming out of the gate saying, ah, I think we should cut tuition fees or, um, increase funding to universities or, or, you know, ban sports science or anything kind of, uh, like that. I think, um, what we've seen so far is candidates sort of setting out broad agendas within which education, post compulsory education is, may feature. Um, and I think Sajid has probably got the most, uh, coherent uh view perhaps of, of this area and writing in the ft at the weekend he talked about a sort of a new settlement on skills and about um and about sort of build, building up britain's capability to respond to technological change and, and that sort of thing but jeremy hunt has also said that there should be interest rate cut on student loans as part of his kind of new deal for the youth um and andrea Leadsom has said something about funding for apprenticeships and, and access to loans for skills which sounded a little bit garbled but she probably won't make it through the next round anyway
1: honestly listen i don't know where to start on, on this i mean i've you know i've heard about uh, jeremy hunt and the, uh, interest rate cuts. I mean, it's just like, you know, retail politics, you know, gives some sort of notional fop to, you know, hard working families or hard pressed families or, or whatever it is. I think it's, um, I think they've got like zero engagement with the higher education uh, sector at the moment. Um, I mean, Boris, I heard pitching for working class white votes by talking about sort of, uh, you know, our great fe colleges and things like this it's all political there's no economics in it um you know i would doubt whether any of them have uh, read more than a paragraph of some hastily cobbled together note uh, summarizing the auger review so i i really haven't got a view on this at all i think it, it's all pretty poor yeah i think the auger panelists will be probably
4: despairing at the the extent and quality of the debate on post-compulsory education in the leadership contest thus far. Um, it's very little indeed. Javid, was as, as, as uh, Debbie correctly said, is the only one to really uh, put any sort of indication of what he might do in government. He talks about personal learning accounts in the article in the FT on the weekend. It seems quite similar to um, to what Augur proposes in terms of lifelong learning allowance, you know, sort of loan allowance. And and a quite welcome, actually, quite welcome proposal in what he said on the weekend about uh, broad Broadening the apprenticeship levy to become a skills levy, to become a skills and education yes, that's, levy. That's a genuinely sensible proposal, yeah. isn't it? Something that we've you know, I've blogged about in the in the last few months as, as encouraging the government to think about. So I don't know what the CBI will think about that, but um, I, I think that it's that, that's genuinely got the potential to be an well, exciting at, I mean, proposal.
1: That's a really good point. I mean, there's, there is this issue. I mean, we've been doing some work for Wonky and for Universities UK on um, costing up the, the Augur report, and we have a sort of section about winners and losers. And one of the winners from the Augur report are businesses. I mean, businesses, you know, even though they pay higher wages, essentially, on average to graduates, they still essentially achieve the same amount of benefit as the graduate does in terms of lifetime benefits from uh, higher product, more highly productive workers. So, you know, employers are a winner and the fact that they have been asked to contribute more extensively to the cost of higher education I mean that just staggers me uh, that that's never happened and
4: of course that was out of scope for the Augur review uh, the apprenticeship levy not the apprenticeship uh, provision per se but the the nature of the levy wasn't within scope so they weren't really allowed to examine that so there is scope but you know potentially looking forward to a new prime minister to think through from first principles what, what the levy
1: should be funding and uh, well I mean if we go back to history what we need is you know essentially we need sort of a, a labour uh, manifesto to sort of suggest uh, some levy of some description and then you know the Tory will probably win the election and uh, then implement some sort of watered-down version. I think it happened with the Apprentice Levy with uh, Ed Miliband and he was sort of accused of being a Marxist and um you know, and then was introduced yeah. by Nick Bowles.
4: Well, there's an irony, isn't there, because Javid is advocating the skills levy, but also McDonald himself, in the last few months, has talked about, not in definite terms, but talked about the attractions of broadening the apprenticeship levy out to, to wider purposes on education and skills. So you could have, you know, a left wing Labour leadership and a potential Tory prime minister talking the same talk about this policy area. So well, there we are. I
3: think I think there is a sort of a, a chin. There, there is a kind of emerging consensus on post-compulsory education that I think OUGA represents a, a version of, um, and, it, and it is around that sort of um, broader skills picture, and, and it's less about kind of let, let, let's, let's try and get as many as many people as we can into higher education, and more let's look at let's look at the kind of the, the, the full picture, and you, you'll get sort of left-wing flavors of that and right-wing flavors of that. But I also think. The sector really, the sector will benefit from higher education not being uh, a kind of a differentiator in the Tory leadership debate because goodness knows what people would pledge, you know, off, off the back of that hastily scribbled paragraph. Um, so you, yeah, you, what, what you want is for people to be setting like kind of broad, broad visions and, and, and light on detail because otherwise, they, you know, they'll be saying things that be tied to that that could be uh, not not the right thing at all.
1: Yeah, quite, be careful what you wish for. <laughs> yeah, but having broad, broad visions and being light in detail. I mean, unfortunately, I think we've had that for sort of many, many years and. You know, if if we, you know, if leadership candidates are brought on uh, aspiration, light and detail, you know, unfortunately, that never sort of seems to change, and that you know, I, mean, I think this is one of the problems we've had in the past.
3: I think what will be interesting is if there, if there is a TV debate. I think, well, I mean, I, I will be watching avidly. Um, it's because the people will be uh, forced to, you know, people. The attempt will be to pin people down. So, it, you know, one of the questions might be, "What should tuition fees be?" And uh, and you well, know, it will be interesting to see do... how.
2: Hi, people avoid the question.
4: (laughs) Yeah, and Boris may not turn up, of course, uh, the leading candidate. Mm. So
2: So that is about it for this week. Remember to delve deeper into anything we've discussed today. You can find the links in the show notes. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show via iTunes or your favourite Android podcast directory. Or you can find the feed that you need on wonky.com forward slash podcast. And if you fancy appearing as a guest on the Wonky Show, do drop us an email on team@wonky.com, and we'll be in touch. So thanks to Gavin, to Greg and to Debbie and everyone at Team Wonky for making this happen. And until next week, stay electable.